Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome back, everyone, to the 45th episode of the Take the Points podcast, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm your co-host, Tate Seth, joined as always by Arjun Menon, coming off a wild, wild card weekend that everyone who had a team not in the playoffs, like myself, enjoyed. Although, if if you had a team in one of the games, I'm sure it was quite stressful, right, Arjun? Yeah, I mean... Again, I, I said this on the forecast. I was legitimately debating my fandom into football, my fandom to the Chargers. I didn't even know if I'd be able to show my face at school, show my face on this podcast uh, for the next couple of weeks. But we're gonna we're gonna push on. At the end of the day, I kind of realized it's just football. Like we're it's meant we're meant to be fans, unless we're working for a team or we're a player. Um, but yeah, I mean, even outside of the Chargers game, which we'll talk about later, it, it was a it was a very fun weekend i think you know going back to our preview episode that we that came out last friday i think a lot of the things we talked about actually came to fruition um in some of the games which is really cool to see um and you know i'm sure we'll talk about some of the points we brought up on friday and like how it kind of showed up in the data uh from this weekend Mm -hmm. yeah i I thought you dealt with the chargers kind of collapse on saturday night well uh better than i've dealt with those types of things in the past and we've all been there with moments where we've we've questioned our, our fandom i think every fan of, of any nfl or, or college football team has had that where they think about if they they don't want to be a fan but yeah you're right it is it is just football and you know we're very lucky to to be able to talk about this stuff and, and have fun with it so Let's let's quickly touch on the Monday night game between the the Cowboys and the Buccaneers, where the Cowboys won 31-14, and then we'll kind of get into the other slate and what we kind of see from from those games. So, you know, this this was the only non-exciting game of the weekend. What were some of your thoughts on on the game on Monday night? Yeah, so I mean, first off, I was it was basically a Dak masterclass and Brady disaster class. And not even just Brady, Byron Leftwich, who I'm not sure if he's fired by now. I think the pewter reports that he was fired but general Jenna lane from espn who was the infamous giovanni bernard reporter said it was still speculative but i mean it was it was one of those games where you watch dak and you're like okay this is a franchise guy like this is not just a franchise guy this is like a tier two he's in the burrow herbert allen category because he's making every throw and the the greatest thing about dak we've talked about this all the film guys talk about it he's just one of the smartest quarterbacks in the league like reading these uh disguised coverage is pre-snap and Todd Bowles he is one of the trickiest defensive coordinators to figure out um in terms of how he rotates his coverage pre-snap to post-snap it's not even necessarily rotating shells like from one high to two high it's showing or forcing your um cornerbacks to show cover one pre-snap and then you drop back into cover three the Bucks have one of the highest rates of cover three of any defense in the league and Dak reads those things so well and I think that was a huge part in this game he averaged a 0.74 EPA per play for reference Brock Purdy averages 0.72 so Dak you know I thought Purdy was going to have the most efficient quarterback game of the slate and Dak did way better against a much better defense on the road um and you know he doesn't have nearly enough as 
weapons that um purdy has so this was a great game by dak that i think his stats could have been even better he could have had his adjusted completion percentage which adjusts for drops was 90 93.3 percent which against this tampa bay defense i think is you know that's maybe one of the best performance qb performances of the entire season mm -hmm. yes no i love i love how you laid out all of that and I think most people are wrong about where they kind of have Dak slated in their in their quarterback rankings. He's too inconsistent to be considered like a top four, top five quarterback, but he's also not as bad as those interception numbers uh, were, were kind of showing earlier in the season. Like he does rank fifth in EPA per play in, in the regular season this season on a little bit of a shortened season. So that's why I think, you know, he kind of gets slotted in the middle there, like you mentioned with the Lamars and the, and the Burrows and different quarterbacks like that. And this is one of the, the games where you see when he puts it all together, it's almost unstoppable between the way that he's able to move in the pocket and kind of get to his next reads. Like we saw him go from just a, the Cowboys offense being a primarily CD lamb over the middle of the field offense to Dalton Schultz in this game, getting a lot of extra catches and, and kind of propelling the Cowboys forward. And then the decision-making that you mentioned is the biggest thing to me about Dak and especially what he does pre-snap. It's, it's not a coincidence that we saw Ezekiel Elliott be very successful as a rusher early in his career in this offense. And right now we're seeing Tony Pollard be very successful as a rusher in, in, his is this part of his career with with Dak at quarterback like Dak does a great job of being able to read defenses and kind of be able to see when to run and pass when to audible and like you can see when he's at the line of scrimmage and he's pointing out different defenders and calling out which ones are going to blitz it like really helps this this offense and on top of that Kellen Moore is also a, a good play caller and when they're working together and they're on the same page we can see a performance like this where Dak adds 28.7 total EPA which was the fourth best playoff performance in the NFL fast R history since 2006. So insane playoff performance, you know, better than Josh Allen's performance last year against the, mm. the Patriots in the wildcard game, barely. So like, that's the type of game that Dak had. Yeah. And the point we brought up on our preview show and just like talking about contenders, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Dallas needed a secondary receiving option to step up. And we saw that in Dalton Schultz, who had, I think, maybe his best game of the season, maybe even of his career, seven catches, 95 yards, two touchdowns. I mean, the Bucs uh, coverage defenders against tight ends. I mean, you have you see guys like Antoine Winfield, Levante David guard them. The fact that he was able to generate you know, that much production is a, a huge plus for the Cowboys, given that they, they still aren't really getting much production out of guys like Michael Gallup. Um, he did have 46 yards, but like even then, like that's that's kind of like an average below average performance for how much they're paying him. So for Schultz to have that type of performance, that's huge going forward. And also, you know, just talking about uh, the idea of like perfectly covered plays um, that we've kind of talked about uh, on various times on the show. Uh, the Bucks only perfectly covered the Dallas offense on 24% of their offensive snaps. For reference, the league average this season, defenses, defenses covered offensive snaps perfectly on 34%. So Kellen Moore had a great game scheming guys open, forcing broken coverage. Now, on the flip side, Byron Leftwich might have literally had one of the worst um, like offensive coordinator performances of any team, any offense in the league this year. The Bucks offense faced perfect coverage on 60 percent of their offensive plays again the league average is 34 percent so i know brady didn't really have a good game 
Um, you know, he averaged a negative 0 0.05 E per, per play. But just this time, just this time, I will give him a little bit of leeway because like Byron Leftwich wasn't scheming anyone open and it was really a disaster class to watch um, for, for the Bucks on the offensive side of the ball. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it reminds me a lot of the 2019 Patriots with Brady, where Brady still was, is playing at an okay level right now. Like it might not be the, the top five, top eight quarterback that we're used to from Brady, but he's still an above average quarterback. And there's just no juice from this offense because of scheme. I think primarily the inability to run the ball uh, playoff Lenny did not have a good playoff performance in, in this game. And like, I think both Leonard Fournette and Rashad White having negative 0.8 rushing yards over expected on the season, both bottom five in that metric caught up to the, the Bucks in this game because, you know, we, I think we saw this whole kind of slate here where passing offense is always going to be king in, in the NFL for the near future, but the lack of being able to run the ball completely can really hurt you in some situations. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it really did with the bucks. And I, I also think Micah Parsons had a tremendous, tremendous game and was kind of maybe playing injured these, these past couple of weeks, but showed why again, he's, he's the most important defender in the league, eight total pressures uh, in this game, a 20% pass rush win rate from, from PFF. So a uh, game ball or we'll, we'll do game balls for each game. Uh, we, we have Dak Prescott for this game, but Parsons was very close. And before we move on, I, I do have to shout out our friend Judah Fort gang for oh, yeah. on an insane same game parlay in this game. So I have it pulled up here. So he had same game parlay, Dak Prescott, alternate passing yards, 300 plus Dak Prescott over 15 and a half rushing yards. Uh, Dallas Cowboys alternate spread minus five and a half. T.Y. Hilton over 21 and a half receiving yards, which who thinks to put a T.Y. Hilton prop <laughs> in their parlay? And then he also had Zeke under 50 and a half rushing yards and Dalton Schultz alternate receiving yards over 80. And, 80. and so all of those hit. Uh, he had $150 that he wagered and he won $51,000. So it's just so cool to see life-changing money for our, someone like Judah who works so hard at these and kind of to see that process come together for him and him, him to have a perfect read on this game, basically. Yeah, it's awesome, man. I mean, I me and him were sweating that one out in like midway through the third quarter. He sent me that with like the eyes emoji. And I'm like, oh shit, like we got to, I got something to root for now. And it, once, you know, once Zeke got stuffed again for what felt like the 10th time in that game, I was like, okay, you know, we got life. And it, it was just super cool to see. And I, I feel really happy, happy for him. I, I do hope he takes a trip down to Cabo or something to celebrate, or he can go to Glendale when his giants, you know, rock their way to the Super Bowl like it's 2011. Um, but yeah, super happy for Judah. I mean, the fact that he doesn't have like more followers, as, especially as a betting person is, you know, still amazes me, but to please go follow him at throw the damn ball, damn spelled D-A-M. Um, great follow for all things football and betting. But, you know, we should move on to Ravens Bengals. Tage, before we talk about the game, I, I do want to tell like a quick story. So, you know, I don't think you know this or any of our listeners know this. So I know like you and me do a lot of analytics and stats, um, but my favorite class in high school was actually history like i really enjoyed world history ap us history like i my, and my favorite topic was like the british like colonization of like the caribbean and like india just because like that was that, that, that like hit home to, like close to me and so you know i always enjoyed learning about like creole people the mulattoes and every and everyone like that and you know just talking about creole people like one of the largest populations of creole people come in louisiana new orleans right a lot of times you know people 
kind of associate Creole people with a lot of like wizardry, witches, uh, some would even say like voodoo magic, right? And so there is like a large population of like those type of people in New Orleans or like Louisiana in general. I think I have a theory that when Joe Burrow went to Louis Louisiana State University, LSU, he took a class or went off campus to meet some of these people, some of these wizards, some okay. of these people who perform this magic. And he learned the art of magic or voodoo because there is something seriously uh, wild going on with this Bengals team when it comes to the playoffs. Because now this is the fifth straight game, every single Joe Burrow NFL postseason game where his defense has forced a second half turnover. And in all four wins, in all four wins, that turnover has contributed directly, directly to a Bengals win. I need you to explain to me how he keeps doing this. What is, like, how do the Bengals keep winning this way? Please. <laughs> that that was a hilarious anecdote. That was, that was probably my favorite uh, moment we've we've had here recording. But talking from yeah from the game perspective, I think that Lou Anarumo, uh, we've given him a lot of praise on this show. His second half. I don't, I, I don't know if there's necessarily second half adjustments, but kind of the game plan, he kind of can see the, the counter punch coming and knows what he's going to do from that when he comes out in the second half. And that's where these turnovers start to come from. Uh, the, the fumble return in this game was locked, right? Like that's like not something you you expect to happen. But when you when you watch the way that Anna Rumo's defense adjusts from the first half to the second half and the things that they're able to do once they got a better read on Tyler Huntley in this game and they only had the one blown coverage that that led to the touchdown. But other than that, they were they were really good in this game. And we've seen that throughout the entire playoffs. The the most famous of it was against the Chiefs in the mm-hmm. AFC championship last year when he went to the drop eight uh, after coming out of halftime, completely fooled Patrick Mahomes for a half, and that's all they needed. And that's again what I think happened here, where like he just has his players in the right place. And the the at the end of the day, the Bengals d- defense is like it's pretty it's pretty talented, but it's not like at the level that it should be for an elite defense. And the ways that he's able to get these corners to play. And the, the way that the linebackers are able to to do the trade-off between uh, stopping the mm-hmm. run and defending the pass has just been so impressive to watch. Yeah, no, it, the Bengals' defense has been great for, you know, the past, like, two years, especially in the postseason. I do think um, it was a little bit weird to see them kind of struggle to stop the run, especially when J.K. Dobbins was kind of toting the ball. Um, it seems like he was getting outside the tackle or outside, yeah, outside the tackles. The linebackers are kind of failing to um wrap up but then you have guys like Mike Hilton getting inside on slot blitzes like he normally does bringing him down um and just in general like it was a I, I will say like a valiant performance from Tyler Huntley who I, honestly like I know the stats won't look that great I did think he had a pretty good game he I think I I might be wrong but I, I do think he had plus 11 EPA had it not been for mm-hmm. the fumble six yeah, right right mm-hmm. so like to do that going on the road throwing to demarcus robinson sammy watkins devin duvernay mark andrews josh oliver like that is a very impressive performance and i like i really like how much do you think that factors into the the ravens offseason plans with lamar seeing that huntley could hang tough against a pretty good bengals defense on the road basically not throwing to any real receivers outside of mark andrews Mm -hmm. yeah i think 
it shouldn't factor into what they're going to do in the offseason. But I do think it might bleed into their decision-making process a little bit. Maybe this, and this is just speculation, the Seahawks were more okay with trading Russell Wilson if they felt like they could get somewhat competent quarterback play out of either Geno Smith or Drew Locke, which is why they asked for him in the trade or the the Lions, when they traded Matthew Stafford, they wanted Jared Goff badly in that return because they felt like they could get competent play out of him and at least have him be a bridge. So that's something that we could see from the Ravens here where they now feel like they might have a little bit more leverage where Lamar won't get the, the fully guaranteed contract that he wants because they can kind of play their card of we'll just transition to Huntley because look how good he was against mm-hmm. the Bengals in, in this playoff game, like you mentioned, with the supporting cast that that wasn't as good. But it shouldn't factor into their decision because it's it's one game. And there's there's a lot of high variance in this game, as we saw with a, a 50 yard deep bomb that was yeah. also kind of uh, canceled out by the, the fumble six return. But I, I think like as the days go on, there starts to become a higher and higher chance that Lamar Jackson is not a Raven next year. And like they would go about that by franchising franchise tagging him and trading him. And it does seem like there's more and more probability that that happens. I still think it's less than 50%. Like if I had to bet one way or another, I'd still think that Lamar Jackson is playing week one for the Ravens next year, but it's definitely a lot higher than it was two, three months ago. Yeah. And this is why like we've kind of preached how it's so important to get ahead of the market when you're trying to sign a player to a long-term deal. You know, Allen or Lamar Jackson comes from the class of Josh Allen, Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen, two of the five have hit. Josh Allen got a six-year extension this past offseason, right? And then Kyler Murray also got his deal done. Deshaun Watson also got his deal done. And for quarterbacks, you're allowed to negotiate after year three. So technically, after the COVID year, the 2020 year, the Ravens could have started on his extension, but they didn't. Or like For whatever reason, he's had an MVP in his bag. He had two playoff appearances. Um, you know, like I think they did make a mistake there by not getting started or not even getting a extension done at that time because now lamar can look at kyler's deal deshaun's deal josh allen's deal and say that's my baseline mm-hmm. and i think if they got the done the deal done before even with his mvp status and you know playing well in 2019 and 2020 they could have put like not been in the situation but i think they did mess up a little bit by letting that drag on um but but getting back to the game you know i think that we talked a lot about the ravens offense the bengals offense you know, I think it's it's interesting because a lot of people will kind of like look at the stats and say Joe Burrow didn't have that good of a game. I actually like I know <laughs> I know I might seem like a Joe Burrow hater. I actually think he did what he needed to do in this game because first of all, the Ravens defense might be one of the best in the NFL. Just like period. Mike McDonald had this defense humming on all cylinders. And I think the thing for Burrow to do in this game was to not make any mistakes, which I think he accomplished. Right. He didn't he didn't turn the ball over he had zero turnover where he plays and for the most part i think he was pretty accurate on some of his balls um he only had that one drop by i think jamar chase and even he didn't get some calls in the end zone here and there but i think overall it was it was a encouraging performance that the bengals put up some points and for the most part we're, were able to move the ball but i think we kind of saw how bad their offense could be without three starting offensive linemen and, you know, without Jonah Williams at left tackle, I, I, I think there could be a big problem for the rest of the postseason if teams are able to exploit that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you summed it up great there. 
Uh, that's the thing, like the the kind of like the Burrow's razor hair on on both sides, where I think Burrow played okay in this game, uh, and and you know probably did enough to win the game. But like we haven't seen him in the playoffs with a good offensive line yet in in any of his five playoff games. So even though he hasn't played particularly well in in any playoff games, we haven't seen like a vintage Joe Burrow playoff performance yet. They have been able to win because of like what he has kind of done, and he's just kind of quarterbacking instead of playing instead of trying to do hero ball or anything like that which i think is pretty good uh and baltimore is a very tough matchup for cincinnati from cincinnati's offense versus baltimore's defense cincinnati's offense had 0.11 epa per play against non-baltimore teams this year negative 0.06 against the ravens so when when burrow had a 6.1 average at the target in this game and only completed three passes past 15 yards I think like that's just what was kind of in structure because of all the cover three and cover six that Baltimore was throwing at them where they just wanted to build a dome on top of this team and didn't want Jamar Chase, T Higgins go balls. Cause they knew that was the quickest way yeah. to lose against the Bengals. So instead you, you only blitz five times. You play a lot of cover six, cover three, and you just give the ball to Jamar Chase short of the sticks and have him convert every single time. And, Jamar Chase had 25 yards after the catch in this game, 8.5 total expected points added. Nate Tice has a, a funny bit where he says Jamar Chase is never tackled by the first defender that touches mm-hmm. him. And it's true because he doesn't. And when you're in third and eight and you can throw six yards to Jamar Chase and he can break the tackle for, to get you that first down, that's such a cheat code. And the, the Bengals have done a really, really good job of exploiting that. It's it's honestly unfair, and I I get so jealous sometimes because you know as a Chargers fan they always throw short of the six. It feels like and it's like they they throw short and they get tackled short. But with the Bengals, it's they throw short and they still are able to generate yak from Chase and Higgins, even like through contact. And I think that was the big thing is like they were playing a lot of zone. You know, eighteen snaps to cover three, fourteen snaps to cover six, eight snaps of quarters. So a lot of keeping receivers in front of them not getting torched behind like we didn't really see one deep ball get completed but it was a lot of soft zone and you know marcus peters was playing hurt so of course he allowed you know some yards after the catch and so yeah the the bengals even though they don't have an offensive line they will go as far as their receivers take them it's not even that i think it's like joe burrow taking them i think all he has to do is you know, throw it, like be accurate, be a quarterback. It's not that he has to carry them because without an offensive line, it's going to be tough for him to like play the hero ball like Josh Allen does or Mahomes does. It's about can how much will Jamar Chase and T Higgins create on their own, whether it's before the catch or after the catch. And, you know, we saw that kind of come to fruition a couple of times in this game. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. And yeah, that's, that's what it is at the end of the day. And, you know, people used to kind of come after Brady, for that exact thing, which is when when defenses would build his dome against him and he would just take his his checkdowns because he knew that would work. And I want you to kind of talk about this and maybe we will see an update after the, the season or something on the decision making uh, article and, and research that you did over the summer where you kind of looked at Brady from that perspective where he was taking he was throwing to these open receivers all the time uh, short passes past the line of scrimmage because he knew that they would generate positive EPA. So like, how do you kind of approach that from like when you're watching the the game and kind of like trying to figure out if they're taking like their optimal choices, basically? Yeah, I definitely think like 
so the the whole track down thing is interesting because you do see a lot of um track downs go for first downs with brady it's like oh checking it down on second and seven but fournette's still picking up eight yards right or like rashad white still picking up five yards on, on third and four so like i don't think check downs are a bad thing obviously they need context and that's why you need to build some type of qb decision making score and i hope you know, as the season ends and between then and the draft, we'll be able to talk about like what teams can do to like evaluate quarterbacks. Like, I, I think we, I hope we can rival Eric and uh, Thomas Dimitrov in that sense about evaluating like positions and stuff. But, in, you know, just talking about like the Bengals case, these teams are going to be putting a dome over the top. They don't want to get beat by Jamar Chase and T Higgins. So one of the things that I like my like kind of thesis in this game and was they're going to, the Bengals are going to throw a lot of stuff underneath, which is check downs to Mixon, check, check downs to P Ryan or Jamar Chase on crosses or hitches. You're not going to have the time, first of all, against a good uh, Baltimore pass rush to get the ball out deep. So it is okay to take the stuff underneath. And yeah, for the most part, it might not seem optimal if you're throwing two yards short of the sticks, but I think knowing that you have Chase and Higgins, it definitely helps to um, know that like they can get yards after the catch. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I am working right now to kind of like overhaul that project and hopefully I'll have a some type of article done by the Super Bowl or at some point just like apply that decision-making decision, decision processes to 2022 quarterbacks. But I think, you know, that whole framework is is kind of how you want to evaluate a quarterback decision-making in a kind of like in a, in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think I think it's really cool, cool to see. And, you know, when we move on to this next team, game here with Giants Vikings, we we have to talk about the play, right? Uh, Kirk Cousins, like this is this is the type of decision making that happens with Kirk Cousins. And what stinks for Cousins is he was really good in this game. 0.34 EP per play. It would have be, been even higher if Dexter Lawrence didn't have his eight pressures. And <laughs> but at the end of the day, it comes down to the final play of the Vikings offensive season where uh, Vikings come out and two by two set Dalvin cook is in the backfield. So that's, that's what I thought was their first mistake by Kevin O'Connell who called a fantastic game up until this point. Uh, You either should probably go five wide receivers on this play because it's a very obvious passing Mm -hmm. situation, or you should keep Dalvin cook in to block the pressure up the middle. That's been kind of haunting you all game. What they did instead was, they had Cook go on kind of like a release, like a late release. So like he stayed in for the first second and then went on the release, which didn't do anything for them because he was just standing at the line of scrimmage uh, at the time of the throw. Justin Jefferson runs a corner route, like a nine route uh, that's 25 yards down the field. And he, you should want him to be your primary target on that play. The Giants are already playing a bracket on him. Plus they have a single high safety on this play that's mm-hmm. shading over to Jefferson's side. So he's completely out of the play. And even though they only need to get eight yards, he's all the way down the field. On the other side, Thielen is running a fade that's probably just a clear out for KJ Osborne's uh, long slant over the middle. But because of maybe Dexter Lawrence's pressure or because uh, Kirk Cousins didn't think that KJ Osborne was going to get open in time, in the time that he needed to get rid of the ball, you can see Kirk Cousins' eyes dart to TJ Hawkinson right as he's breaking out of his route about three yards from the line of scrimmage. Kirk Cousins throws to there and he doesn't throw outside. He throws a little bit inside. So Hawkinson has to come back for it. He catches it and he's tackled. Sure, the sticks in the game is over. And, you know, everyone went pretty much crazy with with how this play unfolded, which I think, you know, was was kind of 
bad for for Kirk Cousins because he he again like he he played well in this game. It's just that one play really kind of it left the bad taste in everyone's mouth. Yeah, I, I mean it's tough because I I think you have to you have to make that throw to Osborne who's coming in on that inbreaker. But it, it's a tough one, especially when you get interior pressure right in your face. Like you might not even see that he's breaking in or uh, like if he's even open. So. If you're if you're trying to give the team the best chance to make something happen, then yeah, I can understand throwing to Hawk to maybe he creates some yak is the best option. But I think like it, it would have been a great throw if he was able to complete that inbreaker to to uh to Osborne. And it's just like I didn't understand the play call. Like like I know you talked about the two by two stuff, just the play call in general. You have your two best receivers, Jefferson's running a deep a deep uh like he's in a nine route so he's basically like out of the play unless kirk makes a a, a dime in a bucket and same thing with Thielen running a fade on the other side like i don't know it was it was a weird one um i i definitely agree that they should have either gone five wide or you know four receivers one tight end or just kept cooking the pass block especially off the interior and ultimately like we've talked about the vikings interior offensive line i think most of the season how they have maybe the best tackle do in the league with Darisaw and Brian O'Neill, but they have possibly the worst interior offensive line of, of any team, like in the NFL. And, you know, you can't re- be relying on guys uh, like Ed Ingram, Garrett Bradbury, Ezra Cleveland to kind of like be able to win one-on-ones. And the problem with Brian O'Neill in this game, right? You go from him to a guy named Oli Udo, right who i didn't even know that's like a real nfl player but when you go from o'neill to udo you're forcing guys like ed ingram to help him right because obviously you need to be able to contain the edges more than in the interior um and so you have to give help from so ed ingram has to help udo which leaves guys like bradbury one-on-one which leaves guys like uh ezra cleveland one-on-one right so it's just a compounding effect that when you lose a tackle like that, who you can trust to leave on an island more often than not, you're going to have to help them. And then that forces your worst players to be matched up in one-on-one scenarios with guys like Dexter Lawrence and Leonard Williams, who are two of the best players at their individual position. That's a great point. That's that's a really good point about their offensive line kind of compounding. And that's why like on the giant side of things, the giants have the 27th, uh, highest graded pass block uh, grade on, on PFF this season. And like this coaching staff between Brian Dable, Mike Kafka, the rest of the offensive game planners are so good at coming up with solutions to get over this. And you brought this up on our preview show. And I was feeling better about the Vikings than I was the Giants because of what I thought their weapons gave them on third down. But the most important weapon in this game ended up being Daniel Jones's legs. He added 3.8 uh, EPA as a design rusher and then 5.7 EPA as a scrambler. The Vikings had given up the fifth most yards to scrambles on the season and they went for it completely in this game. And Daniel Jones, uh, you know, wasn't asked to do much as a passer, but he was very good as a passer. And we saw them kind of have answers to everything that the Vikings gave them in the first half. The Vikings played quarters primarily, and the Daniel Jones was able to throw uh, everywhere but basically the middle of the field, the right and left side of the field, about five yards because of how soft those that quarters coverage was. And he just kept eating them alive there. And then they switched to cover one and cover three. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To try to help mm-hmm. the, those quarters, and then they went to middle of the field, and they went to, when they were in cover one, Daniel Jones is scrambling, and it was a great game from Jones, but I was even more impressed, again, with Ryan Dable and Mike Kafka and how well these offensive game plans were. It literally looked like seven on seven, like the the Giants' bad offensive line didn't even matter in this game. Uh, And it's not like the Vikings don't have like any pass rush or anything. Like they have some semblance of that. And it did it. The Giants were able to do whatever they wanted for basically the entire game. I don't want to sound like I'm like degrading Daniel Jones's performance, but this wasn't like a one of the all time playoff like calls or just like uh, offensive, like play calling uh, games by someone I've seen. The Giants faced perfect coverage on 21% of their plays, which was the lowest of any offense on wildcard weekend. Again, the league average for facing perfectly covered plays on offense is 34%. So seeing that the Giants faced 13, uh, perfectly covered plays on 13% less than the league average is awesome because they're, you know, Dable and Kafka and Shane uh, Shane Tierney, I think, is their quarterbacks coach. They're working with Darius Slayton, Isaiah Hodgins, Richie James, da- Daniel Bellinger. Like, you don't just, like, get open with those guys. You have to scheme them open. And even against zone, you have to be able to scheme guys open. And we saw guys running wide the hell open all game. Crossers over the top, behind the linebackers, underneath. I mean, had Slayton not dropped that third and eight pass with like three minutes left. I mean, it could have been like a, like a huge gain. And we just saw guys running wide open. And the other part is like Daniel Jones, like he might be the best QB scrambler after like Justin Fields and Lamar Jackson. Like he knows when to use his legs, how to use his legs. He's not going out like after two yards, like he's putting his body on the line to take hits. And, you know, I distinctly remember this point we brought up and like the, the uh, Vikings allowed the four the, the most QB scrambles of any team in the league, right? And we talk about, you know, Daniel Jones' rushing yards. Like, his rushing yard prop is like 39 and a half. Like, that was an easy over for me. Our friend Judah Forking also missed on about $33,000 by Daniel Jones taking two kneels because he took what we said and laddered Daniel Jones' rushing yards up to 80, which was like, you know, an alternate line, alternate line right? So I think you see how the Giants are so good at just taking advantage of opposing defenses and even like eric kendricks who has been a great linebacker for years you could tell that he was struggling to keep up with like the crossers the speed of the the uh, giants receivers so it was i think a masterful game plan by dable and kafka and you know they really took advantage of a really bad uh vikings defense yes i i, I love how you laid out 
all of that. And that's where we start to get with Daniel Jones. And we'll, we'll talk about this more in, in detail as, as we get into the off season here, but I'm starting to think, especially after this game, getting that elusive playoff win can do so much for a quarterback. And so if you're the giants, you're telling yourself that you rank 12th in uh, EPA per drop back, you know, Daniel Jones ranked 11th in EPA per play on the entire season. I could see how the Giants start to talk themselves into one more year of Daniel Jones because of this game exactly where when they were kind of clicking on all cylinders, it did wonders for them and they had one of the best offensive performances of the season. So it's going to be very interesting to see how an organization like the Giants approaches that. And, you know, I, I again, like we're, we're going to give the game ball to Daniel Jones here. What I kind of want to focus on is a little post mortem on the Vikings who I think will have one of the most interesting off seasons in the NFL this year. So Justin Jefferson is going to get paid uh, this off season, basically whatever money that he he wants. I'm sure the, the Vikings will give it. And uh, on top of that, you're going to have some really big decisions to make. The defense was, was clearly very slow in this game and aging and like and they're 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 pretty old you have an interior offensive line that you need fixing the tj hawkinson trade looks phenomenal um and just a side note actually win-win trades happen very rarely in the nfl and the lions have somehow been involved in the last two win-win trades and in my opinion maybe the the chiefs uh at tyree kill trade is a, is a win-win but the, the Stafford uh, and, and picks trade win-win and then the Hawkinson and, and Lions getting picks back there also win-win. And like Hawkinson has looked really, really good. That was a great tra- trade by Quasey mm-hmm. and you're going to get Lewis seen back and you're going to hope some of the other draft picks develop. But I wonder what he feels about this team right now. And if he understands that they're probably going to be around in a nine-win team, eight-win team next year and how he'll approach the offseason knowing that in the back of his mind. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he uses some type of in-house like um like team power rating or whatever. I'm sure he's like familiar with like Pythag win totals like knowing like where they actually stand in terms of like pr- like predictiveness year over year, like what their true wins actually was. So, I I think he he's probably smart enough to kind of understand that the roster isn't that good, the team wasn't that good this year and they were, you know, just caught of a streak of extremely lucky like ways to end games. So, I think, I mean, in terms of Justin Jefferson, I know the roster isn't that good. And like, you're going to need money to like fill out other parts of the roster, especially with Kirk at quarterback. But the, you just can't let your generational people like players like Justin Jefferson leave, especially because Kirk like needs those type of players to succeed. Even if this was like one of his worst years of his career, like imagine if you have the offensive player of the year in your, your building and like you just let him walk two years later, like you, that just doesn't happen. So you're, you're going to have to break the bank for him. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a full rebuild incoming just because, again, like they're it just with Kirk, they're just like destined for mediocrity and they go into the playoffs at 13 and four and lose in the first round. Like you just can't, I don't know how much confidence you can have in the team after that, like especially going into years two and three of your tenure. Mm-hmm. Agree. Yeah. It'll, it'll be really interesting. Uh, cause yeah, cause if you want to do a rebuild after a 13 win season, it's very hard to explain to ownership. So, I'm I'm very intrigued by by what Koisi is going to do this offseason. Uh let's let's move on to to Dolphins Bills. Um and you know I, I do want to bring up something to you. Like I I think it's a little should we be a little bit worried about Josh Allen's hero ball, right? So he has a 16.0 average depth of target 
in this game, which is 99th percentile. And in the fourth quarter, while being in control of the game and playing with a lead for the majority of, of the fourth quarter, he had a 26.2 average depth of target. Uh, he threw six passes past 30 air yards, which we just don't <laughs> see that often. Um, and, and I am a little worried about his hero ball, but I'm, I'm curious to see what, what you think about it. Mm-hmm. I agree that it's, it, the hero ball isn't the way to kind of close out games. And I do think his aggressiveness got the better of him. So like you said, uh, 26.2 ADOT in the fourth quarter, it, it's like, there's just no need for it. You have an average time to throw a 3.15, which is like Justin Fields level. And it's like watching back the the game on tape. It's not like guys weren't open. Like he had the underneath stuff. He had the checkdowns sitting right there. Just he, I think he was trying to make too much out of nothing. He just like playing the Dolphins before in his career, like playing, you know, knowing that they play a lot of cover one, a lot of cover zero, like he's going to have one-on-one matchups. I think he does think he can take advantage of them when, you know, sometimes it's okay to take the checkdowns. Like that was the thing with Mahomes. Like it felt like sometimes he was trying to do too much hero ball when he needed to play more like Brady, which is take mm-hmm. the checkdowns, take the underneath stuff, which we saw this year. And that's what we need to see from Josh Allen. Now, Josh Allen might be one of the highest variance players of any QB or just any player in the league. He had seven big time throws in this game and three turnover worthy plays. So some of the throws he was making, the throw to Diggs was just gorgeous. And then the the corner shot to Gabriel Davis for a touchdown, I mean, that, that might have been even better. But I think at times, like you said, he tries to do too much when Ken Dorsey is scheming guys open. Like there are guys running open underneath that I think he needs to take advantage of and it's going to be a big test this week. Like Lou Anarumo is going to give him the underneath stuff. And if he's, if he's holding onto the ball for three, four seconds, like Hendrickson and Hubbard will chase him down. And if he tries to make too much out of nothing against, you know, a Bengals defense, as we'll talk about on Friday, it's going to be tough for him. And he can't be playing hero ball every single play, especially when you're winning by 10 uh, in the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the seven big time throws that you bring up is why like I think he can get away with doing it more than other quarterbacks can because some of the throws to Stefan Diggs and uh and, and Gabe Davis and, and even like the, the touchdown to Cole Beasley or you know using Shakir, like they they have like they have times where it looks really, really good. And like when the Bills went up 17-0, like that's like the times where it looks really, really good. But you do need to bring your A game when you're playing against the Bengals and the Chiefs in the playoffs. And that wasn't an A game from the Bills, which was okay because they were playing against Skylar Thompson. So maybe there was some oversight and and look ahead from them. You know, look ahead games aren't really a, a real thing, but sometimes psychologically they they mm-hmm. can they can kind of affect the way that that someone approaches a a game and that that can happen and like the the market clearly still very respects the Bills. Uh you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but they opened up as a five and a half point favorite against the Bengals next week and, and we'll get to those the previews on Friday in the Friday show. But that was that was bet down. And so the the models and kind of like what Vegas is thinking still believes very highly in them because the talent is there and the Allen to Diggs connection is still one of the most unstoppable things in the league. But you just don't want the Aaron Rodgers uh, put the team on the back like performances in the playoffs when you don't necessarily have to. When Allen has put the team on his back like he did against the Chiefs in the divisional round game last year, it worked out very, very well for them until the very end there. But you just don't want him to have to do that when he doesn't have to and when Stefan Diggs is getting open and when he can take the underneath stuff to James Cook and Devin Singletary. 
Yeah, no, exactly. He can be playing like Aaron Rodgers. He, like, okay, I, I know the Bills defense. I've I've been saying it for, I feel like, a couple of weeks now. It's, like, a little bit overrated. But, like, when you're playing at home and you have, like, kind of that, you, you're playing up by 10, you don't need to be throwing the ball 30 yards down the field. Like, that is when you need to be a little bit more conservative. And, I don't like, again, I don't think it's Ken Dorsey. I do think it's mostly Josh Allen because, I like, guys were, you watch back some of the game on, like, the All-22 or even the broadcast angle, you, you can see the guys underneath, like Devin Singletary and James Cook being open. I just think it's the nature of playing the Dolphins and how bad they've been as a secondary this year that he thinks he can, you know, create something off structure. But again, like when he goes against better defenses, like potentially the, or when he goes against the Bengals this weekend, and if he goes against a team like the Jags or the Chiefs, who will show a lot of disguises and play zone behind them, I think he has to be able to take um, the underneath stuff on, you know, there's no really big point to talk about the Dolphins offense because they're playing with Skylar Thompson and, you know, they did have seven points come via a fumble six and they had like four short fields that they turned into points. But, you know, I think we should give a little bit of credit to Skylar Thompson. That was a very tough thing to come in, uh, in that type of road environment, your first playoff start. I know the stats doesn't look, don't look pretty. He actually had the same uh, EPA per play as Josh Allen, but I mean, he, he wasn't helped at all by his receivers. He had, you know, three drops and like a couple of them were deep down the field, which could have been like big EPA plays or just big plays in general. Um, how like how confident do you feel about this Miami team, especially the coaching staff going forward into next year? I think other than the delay game penalties, the coaching staff was really good in this game and Pleasantly surprising throughout the entire season, Mike McDaniel ended up putting together a, a pretty efficient offense, all things considered, with a quarterback who most people wanted to get rid of after last season and uh, and kind of using backup quarterbacks this year, even though they weren't effective, they still did a pretty good job of kind of keeping things afloat there. So I do like what McDaniel has to offer as a play caller and the defensive coaching staff tried really hard in this game and, and kind of throughout the season, despite the level of talent, you just would like to see more from a defense that has a decent amount of resources invested in it between what they're paying their corners, yeah. and the, the trading, the first round pick for Bradley Chubb. So maybe they, they look to get more uh, kind of like new ideas and innovation on their defensive perspective. But I think the offense, as long as they have a, a, an okay quarterback in play, will will always be pretty good. I think it becomes interesting, and it probably won't be next year, if they were to land some type of high-end quarterback, whether it's through trade or, or through the draft, what their offense would look like. Because a lot of people expected McDaniel to have just the similar Shanahan offense this year, but it was actually a lot different and it, mm -hmm. it played a lot to to his strengths. And we saw it be very good for a long portion of the season. So I think, I think they're kind of settled as, as like a middling team because of some of their problems along the offensive line defense. But I do think that the coaching staff stepped up and, and was, was better than expected this season. Yeah. Okay. I agree. Um, and game ball for this game, who do you think it should go to? I think it, it's tough to pick one because, like, I don't think anyone played amazing <laughs> this game, but Stefan Diggs should probably get it. Uh, mm -hmm. 8.6 total EPA, uh, 73% success rate was good receiver as always. Yeah, no, I agree. I think Josh Allen made uh, too many bonehead mistakes, as we, as I like to say, his, his bozo gene activated too many times <laughs> during the game for him to get the game ball. Uh, okay, moving on to Chargers Jags. Um, I, honestly, I want to hear what you have to say first before I kind of give my spiel. So I'm gonna let you kick it off here. 
I think it came down to the fourth downs and Brandon Staley losing his edge at the end of the day. The Chargers had minus 13.1% win probability added on fourth downs. They kicked a field goal from fourth and goal from the plus four, which would have been a go last year for them. They kicked a field goal fourth and goal from the plus five, which might have been a go for them last year. And then fourth and three from the plus 22, where they could have basically ended the game. They kicked a field goal and it was missed and they were only up 10 points and the Jaguars were able to come back because of that. The Jaguars, on the other hand, went for the fourth and seven. That was an interception, but it was still a good process to go for that. And then the fourth and one call where they had all three timeouts. And we've seen coaches like Todd Bowles punt in that exact same situation this year. Doug Peterson went for it, had one of the best play calls of the entire season, getting into the T formation from 1950s Nebraska football to to convert that fourth and one. That was an explosive run by Travis Etienne. And I think like at the end of the day, like those are where the little edges are found. And if Staley goes for a couple of those fourth downs, like he did, like he would have last year, the Chargers probably would have won this game, but there was too many kicking field goals and the missed field goal opened the door for the Jaguars to come back. And I, I think you mentioned this on Twitter, but there's, there's not much of a difference between going up 10 and going up 13, especially with seven minutes to go. And that's mm-hmm. why you shouldn't have kicked the field goal in that situation. And they did. And I know it gets tiring to say the same thing about fourth down discourse over and over, but this stuff matters. And at the end of the day, like the Chargers weren't able to capitalize on a lot of the Jaguars mistakes because of their decision-making. It's it's frustrating because you hear on the broadcast like, oh, the Chargers should take the points. Ironically, that's you know our podcast name. We we obviously mean it in irony. Like we don't advise teams to take the points always. Obviously, there's certain situations when you should, but taking the points doesn't mean take you're actually taking the points because you still have to make the freaking kick. Cameron Dicker has been nails for pretty much the whole season. A 40 yard field goal is well within his range, and he just completely misses. Right. So I do agree. The fourth down decisions played a huge part. I think. I was just frustrated with the offense. I mean, it, it's tough. It's it's weird to say I'm frustrated with the offense after they put up 30 points, but this is like just the most frustrating offense to watch. You have, you know, a, a QB with a howitzer for an arm, and he's he ends with an ADOT of 5.9, right? And his time to throw is 2.69. So even when it's not like he's getting the ball out quick, he still has to wait for people to get open because they have the slowest receiving core of almost any team in the NFL. They have no one to challenge the deep part of the field. So the thing with the Jags is like you can stack the box against the Chargers because number one, you know they're not going to beat you over the top with any of their speed guys. And two, you know they're just going to throw short. That's why Herbert, you know, why batted passes aren't necessarily like a, a QB height stat. For Herbert had four batted passes in this game. Why? Because the Jags knew what were what was coming. And, you know, referencing the perfectly covered plays chart, the Chargers had 58% of their plays perfectly covered. Again, the league average is 34. Like the, the Chargers... They they got completely outcoached in this game, and I think that just was the problem. And this is just this is a trend I think we've seen from the Chargers this entire year. In the first half of, of games, the Chargers defense ranks like top eight, I think, in EPA per play. In the second half of games, they fall to like 29th. Like that should not happen, you know. And Brandon Staley game plans like no other coach does. He's one of the best game planners 
in the NFL. What I think he struggles at is adjusting in-game. And for some reason, I think Brett Coleman talked about this. The Chargers are playing a lot of cover two and three very early in the game, taking a lot, taking away a lot of the underneath stuff. But in the second half, when they were playing up with the lead, they got more conservative. They tried to limit explosive plays, which actually worked against them because they played more quarter, quarter half. They played more quarters. And Doug Peterson took them for a freaking ride where he was throwing deep crossers. He was utilizing a lot of like stuff underneath and over the linebacker, putting Kenneth Murray in, in coverage using mesh. And I think it was a masterful game plan by Doug Peterson out of the second half. So, um, you know, obviously now Joe Lombardi at the time we're recording, Joe Lombardi has been fired. I know, you know, I haven't been that impressed with the offense at all, but I do hope he, he ends well after all, you know, this is still a, it is still a people's business. Like he obviously hope he lands on his feet, but it, it was a frustrating way for the charter season to end going from scoring 27 points in the first half to three uh, in the second half. Mm. Yeah. And it was the right decision to move on from Joe Lombardi. And like you said, at the end, you don't want to celebrate anyone ever getting fired, but I think like that he kind of exhausted a lot of what he had to offer for the chargers and that offense in the second half. Like I, I don't think Herbert played that well, but it also wasn't schemed up that well. And like losing Mike Williams for this game and having receivers get injured mid game was kind of just a, a disaster that that all came together. And you saw like the duality of these two quarterbacks here where you compared Lawrence to Herbert as a kind of a baby Herbert when we were on Kevin Cole's podcast last week. And that kind of came to fruition here where you saw probably like one of the worst halves uh, of football that a quarterback can play from Lawrence and the resilience and the grit that he had Mm -hmm. to bounce back from it in the second half. And the flip side for Herbert, who played phenomenal in the first half and then kind of unraveled a little bit in the second half as things started to go their way. And that's like kind of where these two quarterbacks stand right now, where they're, they're pretty similar to each other and they have the arm that can make all the throws, but there are some inconsistencies there, which it is the NFL. And we can, we can see that happens. Uh, we've, we've been talking for a while here. So um, why don't we quickly touch on Seahawks 49ers and then yeah. we'll wrap up. Yeah. So, I mean, this game, not, not really a lot to talk about. I, I think I just want to say Kyle Shanahan has been in his bag with Brock Purdy. This was one of the best, games I've seen from him from him as a coordinator even some of the incompleted passes where's Brock Purdy missing high or throwing behind a receiver on a screen pass like there were guys running wide open on deep crossers on in routes on wheel route I mean I think there was just one play it was the throw to Juwan Jennings where first of all it was a bad pass but it was a crazy play call where you're calling an outside zone and most teams run a bootleg off of that but instead Purdy turns towards the sideline like the short the short part of the field and they run a wheel on the short side or like the the strong side or whatever or this the guy is running a wheel on the side that the run is directed towards you don't see that like Kyle Shanahan his play designs were amazing in this game and you know Brock Purdy averaging a 0.72 EPA per play that is Charles Shanahan. Like I think Purdy deserves a little bit of credit, but there are guys running wide open in this game. And I definitely think Kyle Shanahan has been electric to kind of end the year from a play calling perspective. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. And Purdy 11 for 15, 235 yards when throwing the receivers charted as open, uh, according to PFF four for 10 for 43 yards when throwing the receivers uh, that were covered, which is expected. It's harder to throw to receivers that are covered, but you can kind of see the the Shanahan wheels turning here. And the, like, again, like going back to this, like I think Shanahan enjoys 
playing Madden so much where he is in complete control of whatever his quarterback is able to do, telling them in the headset when to throw. And sometimes we see when Purdy is pressured, it becomes something really good and something that Jimmy Garoppolo can't do. But it might start to nag on Shanahan that he goes too far back in the pocket when pressure comes to him. And I think that's something that can get coached out of him eventually to kind of throw it away in those situations. But this offense is just so much fun right now. Uh, right when when Debo Samuel and Christian McCaffrey are alternating catches and runs and Brandon Yoke is cooking whatever corner is on him, they have George Kittle also, who is like their sixth offensive lineman. It's also like insane after mm-hmm. the catch. Like there's, there, it's just been, you know, so perfectly constructed. Shout out to our friends. Well, Prague is not our friend, but Shravan uh, Ramamurthy and, and the rest of the 49ers department over there for kind of developing this roster that's just insane right now. Yeah, no, we, we shout out Shravan, first of all. He's he's awesome. And I, I, I definitely rooting for him to, you know, hopefully go far in the playoffs. And, uh, you know, again, we've we've said it for weeks now. 49ers Eagles in the NFC championship would just be electric from our perspective. We have like friends on both of those teams. I think that would be, would be very cool. And yeah, I mean, just quickly to talk about the Seahawks. I I do hope this isn't Gino's last game with the Seahawks. I think he played okay. Uh, He definitely missed some throws towards the end of the game, throwing the the interceptions, obviously that kind of sucks and it kind of ruins your stats. But I think outside of the, the sack fumble, he was playing good for a majority of the game. Some of the deep throws he was making, the one to DK Metcalf dropping it in the bucket over Tarverius Ward, that was very nice. So for the most part, I was a little bit concerned about the 49ers defense for a part of this game but i think they rebounded pretty nicely and we got a very strong finish from them especially um alongside the defensive line where nick bosa on 24 pass rush snaps had zero pressures but we've talked about the depth of this d-line with charles amenahu armstead kevin gibbons ebucam all contributing two three pressures here and there with amenahu i believe picking up the sack or i think it was ebucom or no i think it was amenahu picked up the sack fumble and you know that kind of turned the game on its heels yeah exactly that's exactly what it is. This this roster is is just built at every single position, and you know that's why for the third string quarterback, they're they're four and a half point favorites against the Cowboys in the division round. But we'll we'll get to that on the Friday show. One more thing I wanted to touch on real quickly before we end here is yes, there are chips in the ball. There have been chips in the ball since 2017. That's how a ball appears on the dots that Next Gen Stats or anyone from ESPN tweets out. Like I don't know how this wasn't like realized by like people like Pat McAfee earlier, but you still can't use the chip in the ball to determine first downs or whether, uh, well, first downs you can use it for, um, kind of, but like they, you still don't know when the player would be down or when they cross the goal line, if their knee touches the ground, it's not as simple as tennis where you're able to isolate the ball from the player. Um, it's it's a lot harder in, in the NFL. I still think Sam Schwartzstein's idea on kind of putting the each each uh, new set of downs on the nearest yard line is still the best solution we have mm-hmm. to the problem because it's very easy to see the absolute yard lines as you go down the field, but they're not going to use the chip in the ball anytime soon because of its margin for error. And the fact that it still doesn't tell you when players are, are going to be down on uh, and, and, and like when to stop the ball exactly. Yeah, no, 
all the points you brought up is inter- are are exactly correct, and I think I uh, hope uh, the NFL should just pay a large sum of money money to Sam to help them with their rules and to fix everything because he did a great job with the XFL, and I think he you know deserves to be in that type of role if he if he ever is interested in it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't really have any much more to add to the discourse. I think you kind of wrapped it up well. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I just wanted to to throw that in there because I saw the the McAfee clip. And uh, it's it's been a week without uh, getting mad at, at Pat McAfee, so <laughs> wanted to put that in. But yeah, we'll be we'll be back on on Friday. Uh, this is a great time, as always, kind of reviewing last week of games. Got really really good divisional round games to preview. All four of them are, are super exciting, and I'm excited to to dig into the data as well there. So thanks again for listening. You know, be sure to review, reach out to us if if you have any any questions, the DMs that we get from people saying that they listen to the show and they've been enjoying it. And then they end up asking a question has has been really fulfilling and and kind of kind of makes us appreciate like why why we do this. And, and we're very grateful for that. So appreciate all you guys. Until next time on Take the Points. <laughs>